Good to see everyone this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our study, getting close to wrapping it up of this letter. We've been talking about growing in grace and godliness being on the lookout against false teaching and false teachers that abound and living with our eyes and our hearts fixed on the Lord Jesus. And uh, as you're turning there, I was thinking about as I've gotten older, it seems to happen more and more that I forget people's names. I know some of you can resonate. Uh, I forget where I put things. The most frustrating is when you've you're looking for things that are on your person, right? You're looking for glasses, and then you realize five minutes later that they're on your head. Has that ever happened to anybody? You're looking for keys that are in your back pocket. That, that is so frustrating, and it's actually exactly what can happen to us spiritually so often, is we're actually looking for things that we already have in Christ. And that's exactly why Peter is writing. He's writing to remind us of all the things pertaining to life and godliness that have been given to us in Jesus. And he's writing so that we would remember to live in light of what's true about Christ and about his coming. So, in honor of the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? And um, we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, we come with fear and trembling before your living word, knowing that you speak and are speaking. God, I have been praying and continue to now that 
your word would be met by humble faith in the hearts of all who hear it, and that we would respond. God, teach us your ways, who you are, how to respond to your truth and what your spirit is saying in this text for us this morning. Thank you so much for the gift of your holy word, for the gift of gathering together beneath it, the gift of gathering together to sing your praises. We love you and praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So a few years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend in our backyard, and we were talking about the Narnia books and Narnia movies, and it just happened in conversation that I said, yeah, it's amazing. There's such good allegories of who Christ is and what it means and looks like to follow him. And there was this huge aha moment in the heart of this friend that they just like dawned on them like, are you serious? This is about Jesus the whole time? And I was like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. We kind of walked through it a little bit and they were like, whoa, I am so dense and that's incredible. Um, They are like the best books for kids, just as good for adults. And there's a scene from the book, The Silver Chair. They never made a movie about it. So you're going to have to actually go read this one where uh, it seems especially relevant for today where Aslan is speaking to Jill and it's just after giving her instructions and before sending her on a mission. And he says, stand still. In a moment, I will blow. He's going to send her to her mission from this high, lofty mountain peak where they're having the conversation. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake up in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake up in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care then that it does not confuse your mind. The signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Remember, remember, remember. That's why Peter is writing. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And I'm doing so to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, just a note on the second letter, depending on whether or not he's writing to the same audience as 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter would have been his first letter. But we don't actually know. There could be, this could be a different audience, and he could have written this audience uh, a first letter that we don't have. But he's coming off of this indictment against false teachers. And in the midst of all of Peter's ire against what is false and what is coming against Christ and what is seeking to lead them astray, I want you to hear his pastoral tone throughout this text. He calls them over and over again, five times in this chapter, beloved. That's why a lot of times you'll hear me call you that. And if you're a dude in the church, you're probably thinking like, why is he saying that to me? And it's a fair question. Uh, But it is a term that biblical writers use towards those who are loved by God. And we have this fellowship. This is what we have most in common. We are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's using that warmly and pastorally as their fundamental identity. And 
these two mentalities are not in contrast with each other. It's not like he's going from being um, just full of ire and rage against false teachers and then now all of a sudden pastoral. It is in keeping with the heart of pastors. If they're truly loving the flock, they will be dangerous to whatever is endangering the flock. And so that is, Peter's been pastoral this whole time, and now you can see that in his tone as he turns to them and he's giving them final exhortations. But listen to all this reminder language. Verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 2, why? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In chapter 1, verse 13, he had said he thinks it's right as long as he's in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. In verse 8, he says, beloved, don't overlook this fact, these truths that we're going to look at, which is another way of saying don't forget or remember. Now, the word for forgetful that he uses in chapter 1, that if you are not adding to your faith these qualities, you're forgetting your former redemption, it's the same word in the Greek that we get the words lethargic or lethal from. So you can get a little bit of what we're talking about. It's actually not natural to remember. It takes effort and work. It's not going to come by lazy following of Christ or a lethargic following of Christ. It actually takes intention and a conscious purpose to remember things about Christ and what he's taught us. And here he's saying, I want you to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. I want you to remember the commandment of the Lord Jesus that you have received. It is going to take work on your part to remember, and the implications are huge. It's like it's lethal if you don't. It is vital in the Christian life that you remember God's Word. God's Word fuels our faith and our hope, and so we go here to refresh our faith. We don't remember just to know something, but we remember so that our faith is revived and our hope in God is revived and we're living in light of who He is. So I want you to keep in mind as we travel through this text that your life and your behavior reflect what you truly believe. We know this. There's a link between what you believe and your behavior. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians about what people believed about the end times reflected their behavior. They thought that the coming of Christ was imminent and that they were just going to be raptured away any moment. And so it led to a lack of faithfulness in the presence. And a lot of laziness among them where they just, some of them started freeloading off of other believers who were being faithful because they thought, what does it matter? He's coming back any moment anyways. And it actually led them to live in an exact opposite way of how Christ told us to live in light of his coming. So we're going to see that again today, that what you believe about the last things, about the future, actually shapes the way that you live in the present. So Peter's writing to remind them specifically to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commands of the Lord Jesus through the apostles, which is a great way of summarizing just the whole text of the Scriptures. You want to remember the prophets, the writings, the predictions, the commandments of the Lord Jesus, and through the writings of the apostles? That's all right here. Remember, remember, remember. But specifically, he wants to remind them or call them to remembrance specifically of what the prophets and the apostles wrote concerning the coming of Christ and the coming day of the Lord. So as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is where we are this morning, what we must remember. We must live in light of Jesus' coming. 
So, living in light of Christ's coming, consciously rem remembering the coming of Christ and the judgment of God. First, we're going to go through this text and look at three specific truths that we must remember as followers of Jesus. As we live in light of his return. First, remember that scoffers are going to scoff. Or if it helps you remember it, scoff is going to scoff. Okay? This is what they're going to do. He says, knowing this, first of all, this is where we're starting, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Jude, in verse 17 of his letter, wrote the exact same thing. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what were those predictions? They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So here for the first time in the letter, we're actually getting some of the content of what these false teachers were teaching, what was so dangerous that they were teaching about the Lord Jesus. And the prophets predicted this, and they, they said, in the last days, scoffers will come. But we know that the last days is kind of a, a reference to this age that we live in after the resurrection of Christ. As soon as he walked out of the grave and ascended into heaven as king over all, we have been living in what the Bible calls the last days. And so Peter and Jude are pointing to the same prediction in this moment, specifically that scoffers are going to scoff at the Lord Jesus and his coming. Mockers are going to mock Christ and his people. Now first note why they mock. Okay, they mock because they want to follow their own sinful desires. So remember, we said there is a link between what you believe and your behavior. So, for example, when we place our trust in Christ, He takes residence in our lives, and through faith in Him, He leads us to a new and a holy life. He transforms our behaviors through a new faith in Him and who He is. Now, for these mockers and all the ungodly, there's still that link between belief and behavior, but it actually flows the other way. So through their cravings and their sinful desires, they change what they believe in order to accommodate their sinful pleasures and their cravings. It's one of the chief differences between believers and unbelievers. Believers live by faith, and our actions flow from that faith Non-believers live by their sinful passions and their cravings and their beliefs flow from their cravings. They want what they want. And so any authority and accountability and concept of judgment must go. And it's not enough for them to deny Christ. We've seen that increasingly over the last few years, that it's not enough for me just to deny Christ and for you to believe what you believe, but now I must mock Christ and actually put him down and belief in him as ridiculous so as to put further distance between the silly, hopeful, naive Christians and the rest of the world that's been enlightened and has beliefs that make sense. And so they mock Christ and his coming as a means of censoring and snuffing out holiness and a witness to God and his judgment. This is why they're doing it. They want to silence all, anybody who would dare speak of a coming judgment of God 
We'll just mock it. Any reference to hell, any reference to Christ's coming is hellfire and brimstone. It should be avoided like the plague. These people are harsh and unthinking. They misinterpret the scriptures and don't realize that God is a God of love. And he's freed us from all that. So we could just be free to live however we want. Don't, don't give attention to people that are holding fast to the word of God as the Bible. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's as Paul says in Romans 1. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. It's not just that they suppress the truth, but how are they doing it? In their unrighteousness, because of their unrighteousness, because of their cravings, they suppress the truth, what can be clearly seen about God from all that he's made. I walked outside this morning, and the sky is pink. And the, it's, the sun came up again. The night was here. But every morning is like a parable to the unstoppability of the rising of the sun and the return of Christ. And he's clearly seen through what has been made. But we suppress the truth in unrighteousness so that I can live however I want without any kind of accountability or fear of God's judgment. And they lead others into their revelry. And so we'll continue to say this to the church. Be on guard. The way to compromised beliefs is through your sinful desires. And people want to accumulate for themselves teachings or versions of Christianity or versions of Christ that will accommodate whatever they want. And so because people want to believe false things about God, it is easy to follow after them and their teachings. May it not be so with us. Scripture is clear. We must crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And you need to know that all of these passions, the way that we take good things and make them ultimately ultimate things, are actually roadways away from Christ. And you must block them off and control yourself and rule your spirit better than he who takes a city. You learn how to actually walk in self-control from your desires, knowing that they could actually lead you away from Christ. So this is why they mock Christ, but note also how they mock him. They ignore history and reality. You can see this, that they don't just change their beliefs in light of their cravings. They go on to deny history and reality itself. So Peter says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter gives commentary on that. They're deliberately overlooking this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So again, he's saying they actually are ignoring history and are deliberately overlooking truth about God that is made plainly evident for the sake of their sinful pleasures. They are creating their own reality to justify the lifestyle that they want. This is what we see all around in a, a myriad of ways in our culture today actually changing reality and things that are clear just according to the law of God and the design of God itself for the sake of sinful pleasures. They say that ever since the fathers fell asleep, look, the prophets prophesied all these things about the coming day of the Lord and about God's judgment, but it hasn't come. It hasn't happened. It's all just a fairy tale and a myth. They were, maybe they say, they were saying those things in those days for those people, but now we're in a different era and Christ has come and 
No more talk about the coming day of God and the coming day of judgment. And Peter says the only problem with that argument is reality. The fact that the flood happened. That God made everything and that the world is accountable to him. He made man to live in relationship with him and to love him and to know him. And man in his rebellion rejected him. And so things got so bad that by the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, after 2,000 years, God regretted that he had made man because it had gotten so wicked. And so after mercifully waiting for thousands of years in his kindness, that's actually the whole meaning of Methuselah's life and the fact that Methuselah is the one who lived longest on the earth is that he was named, when he dies, it will come. And so God kept extending his life one more year, one more year, one more year, because God is merciful and he is gracious and he was putting off his judgment yet another year. But sure enough, when Methuselah died, it came. And this is a historical fact. It says God created everything by the power of his word. And by his word and by the waters that he had used to create the world, he destroyed the world and started over with one man. That is not a children's storyboard story. That is an actual devastating reality that there were thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that lived on the world who died in the judgment of God because of their unrighteousness and their refusal to repent. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was calling people to repentance, calling people to come into the ark. That was a picture of Christ. They refused and rejected God. And in his holiness, he judged the world in righteousness. It is a historical fact. And they deliberately overlook this because they want what they want. And any authority and any concept of judgment must go. But just as God is keeping, says in chapter 2, he's keeping the fallen angels under gloomy darkness for the day of judgment in the same way with the same language here. It says he's keeping the present world and the heavens for judgment. We've seen this in the past few weeks and Peter begins to allude to it here. We're going to get into more detail on that in just a moment. But for now, know this, that in spite of scoffers scoffing, God's judgment is sure. And his delay is not cause for doubt, but opportunity to repent. That's the second reality that we must remember is that we must remember the character and nature of God. So remember, scoffers are going to scoff. They're going to mock Christ. They're going to mock you. But you must remember the character and nature of God. Don't give heed to their talk about God and their mockery about what they do not understand. And let their mockery cause you to doubt. It's easy to say that in here, but you know what it's like. As you, like Jill, live the leave the clarity of the mountaintop, you leave the clarity of the gathering where we proclaim God's word and we encourage one another, and you go out into the world into daily life. And all of a sudden... The mockery is intense. The scoffing at God is intense. There is a majority out there and a narrow way that's leading to life. And all of a sudden, the broad way that leads to destruction sounds a lot more real. And all the narrow talk about Christ sounds like, man, am I, are we really just this 
tiny, small, fringe group that believes on Christ in this way. And don't give heed to their scoffing and their mockery. Jesus said it was going to happen. But they have deliberately overlooked truths about God. And Peter's saying, don't let that be true of you. In the same way that they deliberately overlook, you do not deliberately overlook this fact. Eric pointed out to me this week, this is the only negative command in this whole letter. This is the only command of what not to do. So he gives us a couple examples of what to do in chapter 1. And in chapter, at the end of chapter 3, he's going to go rapid fire with imperatives of what we must do in light of Christ's return. But here he's saying, be careful that you do not overlook, that this does not escape your notice, this truth about God. What specifically? Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There it is again. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So as we remember the character and nature of God, we need to remember and not forget, be careful that you don't forget this one fact, God's eternality, right? He, he is so infinitely high above us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Our, our wisdom is foolishness before him. And specifically here, he's saying he is not bound by time or by our finitude. That God is transcendent and, transcendent and majestic over all that he has made. And that includes time itself. If you were to travel back in history to some event that happened in the past, God would be there presently. And if you could travel a million years into our glorious future with Christ, God would be there outside, above, and around time. That a thousand years to a God who's existed from all of eternity, what is that to him? Now, note too that he says that a day is as a thousand years as well. And I think that points to the the significance of every moment, too. If every day is like a thousand years, then how important is this minute right now? What would be the equivalent? And so he is outside time, but not in a way that makes time less precious or less significant or something to be squandered. It's to be redeemed. But my prayer as an aside here is that we would remember this in the midst of what seems like God taking longer than what you prayed for or what you hoped for in the midst of trials. And you have the same sentiment as the psalmist who in, in 10 times in the Psalter, there's this cry, how long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will you forgive me? How long until you break through and you bring about the rescue and the deliverance that you promised? And our, our solace in the midst of those moments, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of waiting on God for breakthrough in your specific scenario or in the midst of waiting on Christ's return and ultimate breakthrough and deliverance. Our solace is not in the fact that it doesn't feel like a long time to God. That is not what he's saying. It is that it is actually not a long time when you have his perspective, which is the right perspective. That he is sovereign over all that he's made and he works everything according to his perfect timing and his perfect wisdom and he is working in you even as you wait on him. And so he calls us to trust him, that we must remember this, that 
his seeming delay of his judgment of the wicked and the final salvation that in, in the context of our trials, he's never been slow about his promise. Is that shocking to you if I say that? Is, doesn't it feel like in your life that God is slow all the time? And here he says, God's never been slow. He's actually slow in one way that we're going to see right here. The only way that God is slow is to anger. <laughs> He's not slow about his promise. He's never been slow to accomplish his purpose in your life. It is an intentional slowness. It feels slow to you. But in God's timing, which is actually the real timing, it's not slow. This daylight savings things makes it hard to keep track of real time. I was asking Kayla last night, like, hey, if I set my alarm for five, is it going to wake me up at four or is it going to wake me up at five? I just I don't know about the time when it changes like this. And in a real way, God's time is so much different than ours. He's outside of time. And so we are prone to judge God by our feeble sense and by our finitude. And then think of him as unjust or unfair. Or in this case, the ungodly look at him and say, the slowness about his promise uh, means that it's not actually a promise and it's not going to happen. And Peter's saying, you're misunderstanding. God does not operate on your time. He's a different clock than you. So don't forget God's eternality, but also don't forget that God is patient and rich in love and holy. Don't forget these things about God. He is patient. It's the same language as slow to anger, that he is long-suffering. And I think the longer I live, this is one of the most staggering things about God. I mean, how can you pick one? One attribute of God. But when I think about the patience of God, when Paul talks about he rescued me as an example of his perfect patience, then we together with him could say, yes, I know that, Paul. I see that. In the midst of my sinfulness, the fact that he has still loves me, he's not given up on me, still committed to saving me, that he hasn't just called me home because of my slowness to heed what he said, how unlike us and good he is. He's not quick-tempered. He doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't snap off at us. He doesn't act with unmerciful vengeance towards every slight and every sin against him. Think about all the unrighteousness in the world, everything that people are saying about him, all the mockery, all the scoffing, and the fact that he has not returned with just judgment already is a staggering display of being slow to anger. He is just as he has revealed himself. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, we've use these verses much here in our gatherings. These are the most repeated verses in all the Bible. God's self-revelation of himself. When Moses says, God, show me your glory, and God says, you cannot see my face and live, but I'll let you see my back, and he passes before him, and he declares to him who he is. How does God describe himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Then he says the same thing again using different words. Slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So these are truths. His slowness is to be reveled in, to, be, to promote worship in us, that he is patient with us, 
He says this, he's being patient towards you. He's not just being patient only towards the lost to give them opportunity to repent. We'll see next week, his patience is actually your salvation so that you can grow in godliness more before he says, put the pencils down. It's his patience towards us, his love toward us, that he is slow to return as we would count slowness. But it's not slow as, as we count slowness. It's his patience. He's slow to anger, and he's holy. That passage says he, he will not excuse away sin. He doesn't just clear the guilty by just excusing away sin or brushing sin under the rug. Sin has to be dealt with, and so he has made a way of clearing the guilty by charging your guilt to Christ and condemning your sin in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, by doing so, he could be both just and merciful. That he could clear your guilt without being complicit and clearing the, guilty of some, clearing the guilt of somebody without the guilt being atoned for or paid for. John 3.16 is probably the verse that you learned first and know the most. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because if you don't believe on him, you will perish. But if you do believe on him, because of his sacrifice at the cross and taking the guilt of sinners on himself, you will live. He's not slow, but he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's important that we take all of God's counsel together and that we rest in the mysteries of God's word because we know that not everyone will believe and God desires it. That we know that God predestines his elect for salvation in Christ. We know that nobody comes to the Father. Nobody comes to Christ unless the Father who sent Jesus draws him to himself. We know that in love God predestined us for salvation through his kindness to himself so that we could be adopted as sons. And here, Peter's saying, though that he decree and ordain that his people believe on Christ and he allows other people to reject him, Peter makes clear that God desires people to repent and not to perish. This is the heart of God. God is patient toward the lost. He has made a provision for them to repent and place their trust in Christ, and he desires that they do so. This is uh, echoing Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Turn and live. God's desire is that the unrighteous, sinful of the world would turn to him and not experience the judgment that they deserve. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners from their sin and from their certain judgment. And he has made a provision for them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He desires them to be saved. So this text is not for us trying to debate and discern how this fits all together. God's ways in his heart are as high above us as God is outside of time. This is not for debate, it's for worship. It's for you to glory in the fact that God is so, so 
patient. He is so loving. He is so kind. And he is so holy. His judgment will be fierce against those who reject him to the last. And his heart and his desire is that they would not perish, but that they would come to repentance. And all who he has called to himself will repent and place their trust in him. And so we can go forth knowing both of those things. It's not for us to know who the elect are, who our Lord our God has called to himself. It's ours to know that he desires that your neighbors and your co-workers repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls us to go to them with his gospel. Indeed, his message to the lost who take his delay and his gifts for granted is this, Romans 2, verse 4 through 5. Do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So he, he is giving all the world his kindness, and his kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. And for all those who reject him, we come to our third truth that we must remember. We must remember as followers of Christ the coming of Christ with his judgment and his kingdom. We have to remember these things. You will overlook them unless you are careful to remember. The coming of Christ means judgment for the ungodly who do not repent. That is the first truth about the coming of Christ that you have to see and it has to arrest your heart. I've been praying for our church as we travel through 2 Peter that God would give us a true burden for the lost, that this would keep you up at night, that you would go to your neighbor and say, I, I, I need to tell you this truth. I love you and I care about you. And if you were to die tonight, you would spend eternity apart from God in hell. And I want to make sure that you know and have heard the good news of how God has provided for your rescue by the blood of his son. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. The coming of Christ means judgment for the ungodly who do not repent. I say clearly in adding who do not repent because we ourselves were ungodly and destined for judgment apart from the grace and the mercy of Christ, but we repented as a gift from God. It was not of ourselves. He gave us the gift of repentance that leads to life, and he wants to continue to do it as you hold out the gift to your neighbors. Listen to this from verse 6, 7, 10, 11. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It's the same word as destroyed. It's used three times in chapter 3. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They will be undone. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That is a theme that Eric is going to pick up next week as we close out this letter. That, that in light of these things, what sort of people ought we to be? If these things are thus going to happen in this way and we know these truths about God, then, then 
How does it drive us to live holy and righteous lives? This is a call to live in the fear of God and not for worldly pleasures. It's like John writes in his letter, chapter 2, the world is passing away along with its desires. Scoffers live by their desires and they mock the idea of the world passing away, but God's revelation to us is that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, called to wait for and hasten the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So what do you know about God's judgment in the day of God from this text? It's coming like a thief. Jesus said if the owner of the house had known what time of day the burglar was coming into the house, he would have prepared for it. But the coming of Christ, which in this text, making plain, is synonymous with the coming day of God. This is not like Christ comes at some like pre-tribulation rapture and rescues everybody out of the way. Jesus is coming and the day of the Lord happened together. He is coming to bring his judgments on the earth and he is coming unexpectedly. It's the only thing, if, if you go out and you hear all these different predictions about end time prophecy and when Jesus is coming to come back, the only one that is correct is the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He says that it will come suddenly and then five to six times, verse 7 and then 10 through 12, depending on if you're talking about literal saying heavens or a reference to it, five to six times, Peter writes of the heavens being burned up or destroyed or dissolved at the coming of the Lord. So what does it mean? What does it mean the heavenly bodies are dissolved as they melt? Well, he's saying that just like the world that then existed was destroyed by God, by water, when Jesus comes back, the stars and the sky and the heaven itself are going to be Revelation describes rolled up like a scroll and the stars are going to melt with the wrath of Jesus' coming. It's like the most terrifying picture that you could describe that his coming is so fierce that stars melt and disappear. And what he describes in Revelation 6 that we talked about, I think, last week, everyone on the earth tries to flee from the face of God and from the wrath of the Lamb, and there's nowhere to hide. That is the meaning of the sky being rolled up, that the sky that now exists almost serves like a, a revelation to who God is, certainly, but also like a buffer to us between us and God. We can actually use the sky and the stars as a, as a shield to pretend that He's not there or that He doesn't see. And so, this sky that has served as kind of a separation between us and the heavens where God dwells is going to completely be rolled up and disappear. And all of a sudden, there is no separation between God and the world that is due his judgment. And the world and the works that are done on it will be exposed before him. And so we say, oh, to be found in Christ on that day. Not having a righteousness of our own, but that which is through faith in Christ. It's our only hope in life and in death is that we are in the ark of Christ Jesus by God's grace through faith in Christ. Jesus bore the coming judgment of God 
in the day of the Lord for you so that you could be spared on that day and not flee from him at his coming, but instead live with an expectant hope. So he's changed everything about the way that we see the day of the Lord if you're in him. Because the day of the Lord means judgment for the ungodly who do not repent, but the coming of Christ means new creation for believers. Now all of a sudden, instead of the, judgment of God, the coming of Christ meaning the judgment of God and a terrifying expectation of wrath and judgment, we now have this eager hope and longing for him to return because it means salvation for us at last. That's why Peter says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The Lord Jesus saved us from his own wrath so that now we live in eager hope of his coming instead of a fear of his coming. He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son so that now Paul writes in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait a savior the Lord Jesus Christ he's coming he's going to transform our bodies to become like his glorious body and so we're called to stand firm until that day Jesus himself said I've gone to prepare a place for all of his blood-bought people so that where he is you may be also. And he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you into my presence forever. He is bringing us back into paradise that was lost at the garden. But this time, more secure because it is secured by the last Adam who cannot fall. He's bringing us back to a place where humanity again will rule a fruitful earth in full communion with God. It is going to be heaven of heavens and righteousness will reign there. There will be no more unrighteousness and so no more fruit of unrighteousness, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, just the lamb and the presence of God and a sinless, righteous eternity forever. And so how do we conclude we're going to pick up more on this next week, but we need to walk in keeping with where we are headed. If we are headed for a place where righteousness dwells, and we know that the wrath of God is coming against the unrighteousness of men and the ungodly of the world who do not repent are going to be destroyed at the judgment of God, then that should greatly inform how we live each moment of each day, especially if one day is like a thousand years, and each moment matters. Life and behavior flow from our beliefs. What we believe and what we're consciously aware of about the future and the age to come has to shape our daily lives here as we live in keeping with the righteousness that will mark our forever home. Now, our lives need to be marked by waiting eagerly for the coming of the Lord Jesus and being mindful of his character and his ways. Christ has secured for us a glorious future. And so as we wait, we have to remember. As we wait, we remember. Scoffers are going to scoff. The Lord is not being slow about his promise. He has not forgotten his promise. He is coming. And when he returns, he is going to bring 
judgment upon the ungodly and salvation for his people. And in the meantime, as we wait, he has commissioned us, desiring that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He has commissioned us to go to them. He has come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given us the gospel and says, go and make disciples. Call them into the ark of Christ Jesus. Be like Noah, a preacher of righteousness, calling people into the safety of the ark of Christ because his judgment and his coming are sure. He won and he wins and he's coming again. The last chapter of the Bible ends with this repeated promise of Jesus' coming, beloved, over and over and over again, maybe seven times in the last chapter. This word, come, come, he's coming, happens again and again. It's like the last thing that was written in Revelation that he wants us to remember. The last words are so important. And so where he leaves us, as you read through the Bible and you get to the last page, the, the flavor that's left in your mouth from all that you've tasted and seen is, is coming. His reward is with him to render to everyone according to what he's done. And so we as a church must say, yes, the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus, come soon. And as we wait, as we know he's not slow about his promise, then let's be faithful doing what he's commissioned us to do as we wait, living in light of his return. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, the whole world mocks that you're there, that you're coming, that your judgment is true or just. But we believe what you have written about yourself, the promises that you have given to us that are sure. So we want to be faithful to give heed and to remember, remember, remember what you have said in your word. I want to give heed to what you've predicted by your prophets and what you've written to us in all the scriptures through the apostles concerning the Lord Jesus and specifically here about the coming day of God. Lord, would you protect this church in the midst of the scoffing that swirls around them? Would they fix their eyes and their hearts, their minds on the Lord Jesus? Would they be certain of your character and your ways, that you are eternal and merciful and gracious and holy? And pray that you would help us to be, to have your heart both in the little things of being slow to anger in everyday situations, but also that we would have this desire that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Father, may we live in light of the coming of Christ, all that it means for our friends who are outside of Christ, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. God, please give us your burden for the lost and your desire to take the gospel to them and let us live with our hope fixed continually on the grace that is to be brought to us when we see Jesus face to face. We want to be faithful, Father. Would you please come and enable it? Help us to remember all these things as we live in light of your return, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.